Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, our text is actually the entire chapter. It's good for us to come to these places in the Old Testament. It's sometimes said, even by Bible scholars, that the Old Testament didn't have a a resurrection hope. Uh, That's actually patently false, and one of the most obvious places we might go to see uh, the resurrection hope of, of the Old Testament is right here in Isaiah 25. And in fact, Isaiah 25 pairs quite nicely with the text that we looked at on Monday, Thursday, from Isaiah 53, that Christ Jesus suffered for you, for your sins in your place, so that the Old Testament expectation was that there would be a suffering servant who would bear the sins of his people. Well, the Old Testament expectation, too, from Isaiah is that Christ would swallow up death forever. But in order to see how this passage points in that direction and so garners our praise, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, a fortifi- the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners. As heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he would take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill, and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So I'm sure you've had them. Those, those days of great rejoicing where it seems as though laughter and song and tears all kind of mingle together and in a kind of expectation in the light of a great victory won or a great moment in your family. I, one of the memories that comes back to me is of when my oldest son, Sam, was nine years old. And we went to game five of the 2006 World Series when the Cardinals won the World Championship. And I'll never forget after, after Adam Wainwright struck out Brandon Inge to end the game and the fireworks were going off and the crowds were singing and laughing and rejoicing. And my son Sam, who's not the most extroverted person in the world, running down the aisle, slapping high fives with people. And we're hugging each other. I'm hugging this woman next to me. I have no idea who she is. And white and black and brown are rejoicing. And people from all sorts of conditions are rejoicing. We're singing because there was a great victory that was won. Or perhaps it was of a long hoped for wedding. Perhaps you've had one of those. A long hoped for wedding for yourself or for a child or a grandchild. And you come to that, that wedding day when the great feast has been prepared and all the preparations have been made and the food and the wine and, and the song and the dance. And then at that moment when the bride comes down the aisle and, and the entire room, though it would love to applaud, it doesn't, but it's saying, oh, what joy at last. And the bridegroom is standing in the front saying, oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. At last, there she is. It's a moment of great joy, isn't it? A moment of great rejoicing. Or when you've had a child or a grandchild or even a great-grandchild. Uh, just a few hours ago, uh, our niece, Grace, went into a hospital in Athens, Georgia to deliver uh, the first grandchild to Sarah's sister, Becky, and her husband, John, the first great-grandchild uh, for my parents-in-law, Ron and Phyllis Young. And hopefully in a few hours, hopefully she doesn't have to labor long, and when little Wesley is delivered safely into the world, what rejoicing that will be. What songs of joy and tears of happiness and, and great delight because a great victory has been won. You've had those moments of rejoicing, haven't you? That's what's going on here in Isaiah 25. This is a victory song, a victory song over a hated foe. Nothing less than an anthem of joy is what this chapter represents. In the same way that we have sung Alleluia from the time we've entered into worship to this very moment. Because Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. So this song in Isaiah 25, it, it's doing the same thing. Because it pictures a time when God has conquered all his and our enemies. Sin and law. Death and hell, devil and demons, sadness and sorrow, they're all defeated. That's what's being pictured in this chapter as we come to the mountain. What mountain is this? It's the mountain of which the writer to the Hebrews spoke of, that we've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We've come to Mount Zion, and we've come to him with these words, and we say, as verse 1 has it, O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Alleluia. Praise the Lord. But why? 
Why do we praise the Lord this morning? Why do we come this day with our best clothes and our best songs? Why do we come this day, for many of you, prepared to, to eat a feast afterwards as we are at the Lucas household, a table laden with heavy food, with preparations that have been made? Why do we come with our hearts aflamed and our, our tongues unloosed so that with all of our might and strength we sing praise on this day? Why do we come to praise the Lord on this Easter morning? Well, we come to praise the Lord, first of all, for his faithfulness. That's what the first five verses of this chapter describe. I, I love the way the NIV renders the, the first verse of this chapter. Uh, they have it as, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You see, Isaiah means to highlight God's faithfulness in, in accomplishing things planned long ago or plans formed of old. What are those plans? Well, the covenant promises made to, to Adam and Eve and to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to, to Moses and to David. If you go back even further in the reaches of time, the very purposes of God and, and purposing salvation for his people, all of the promises of God summarized in that great covenant of grace, they're all coming to fruition. God is demonstrating his faithfulness. How? How does God prove himself faithful to his promises? Well, Isaiah tells us by, by being the victor over his enemies. You see it there in verse 2. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Why? Verse 2. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. What's that describing? Well, the city, the, the fortified city, the, the foreigner's palace, they, they all stand for those who withstand the true and living God, the true God of the world. Uh, this represents those who are bent on their own way of salvation, so that through their own mind and their own power and their own wisdom and their own intellect and their own smart, they are accomplishing salvation by their own mighty hand. And yet, like with Babel so many thousands of years ago, remember Babel? In Genesis chapter 11, that ziggurat, that tower that reached to the sky so that the people might not be scattered and they might be like gods. Just like Babel, God is able to judge the cities of the world. Just like Babylon, of whom Isaiah would prophesy. Babylon, of which Nebuchadnezzar said, look at what my hand has built. Look at what my glory has done. And yet God was able to confuse Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately destroy Babylon and deliver his people. Or like with Rome in Jesus' day, ruled by one who called him Caesar Augustus. Caesar the August one, the most high one. The one who called himself Pontifex Maximus, the most high priest. The one who intercedes for the gods, the one who is a god. Where is Rome today? God is able to, to vanquish Rome. And even in our own day, where we see a usurper invading a sovereign nation like Ukraine... And many have prayed against him to drive him back and to be defeated. So it always is. God is able to defeat all of his and our enemies, but not just physical enemies, not just political or military enemies. No, all of God's enemies are pictured here in these five verses. Sin and law, death and all of his friends, fear, grief, sorrow, all that's ruthless, all that stands opposed to God and his law, he defeats. 
He proves faithful to his promises. In fact, three times in these verses, the word ruthless is used. This this ruthlessness is represented in a relentless belief in and use of might to accomplish their ends. But what happens to the ruthless? How has God victor over them? Well, you see it in verse 5. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is point put down. It's silenced. It's stilled. How does it happen that the ruthless of this world, the ruthless physically, the ruthless emotionally or spiritually, how are they defeated ultimately? God does it. God conquers He destroys their palace. He ruins their city, never to be rebuilt. In fact, because God has proven victorious, even the ruthless will submit to him. Even the ruthless will fear him and glorify him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the victor, and he's proven himself faithful to his promises by gaining victory over his enemies. But but Isaiah goes on to tell us that that our God and the reason why we praise God for his faithfulness is not just because he's a a victor, but also because he's our shelter. He's a shelter for his people. That's what verse 4 tells you. Verse 4, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For like the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. That word stronghold in verse 4 used twice there could be rendered a a refuge or or a place of strength, a fortress. A a shelter is a place at hand to turn to, a a place of available security in the midst of storm. And and Isaiah is saying that that God is, is like these places, but he's not praising the places. Isaiah is not praising strongholds. He's not praising shelters. No. He's not praising a place, he's praising a person. He's saying that God is our refuge. God is our place of strength. God is our fortress. God is the one to whom we turn. He's our security. He's the faithful one. What is it that we sing? Those of us who grew up in in traditions that love the old gospel songs, we learn to sing, the Lord's our rock, in him we hide. Secure whatever ill betide, a shelter in the time of storm. A shade by day, defense by night, no fears alarm, no no foes of fright, a shelter in the time of storm. And why is God a shelter in the time of storm? Because he's faithful. He keeps his covenant promises. He does not abandon his own. He comes alongside us when we struggle and when we suffer and he proves faithful to us. Listen, you may be here this morning. I don't know what's going on in some of your lives. I know what's going on in many of your lives. I don't know what's going on in some of your lives or what's happened even this week. There's some things that you keep secret. Hurts that you have, sorrows that you've known, great difficulties, challenges that you face. It might be in your marriage. It might be with one of your children. It might be in the workplace. And you feel as though you're, you're just holding on to reality. And if you can, if, it's almost like your hands are just gripping this ball that's, that seems to be slipping out of your hands or the ball itself is unraveling and that ball represents your life and you're just gripping it with all your strength and you're wondering, God, why has this come into my life? I feel as though I'm unraveling, my life is unraveling. What's happening to me? Listen to me. If you're in that condition, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. This God who, who is a shelter in the time of storm, he will prove faithful to you. You can trust him. You can rest in him. 
He is the one who's triumphed over all his and our enemies. And though you may not understand what's going on right now in your life, you can rest assured that your God is not just great and powerful, one who sits in the heavens, he's good. He's good. And he demonstrates his goodness by being faithful to his promises. That's what the psalmist says. He calls us to praise because this God is our God. We exalt him, we praise him because of his faithfulness. But not just because of his faithfulness. There's a second reason that Isaiah gives us here on why we we praise the Lord today, why we sing the hallelujah, not just because of his faithfulness, but also because of his feast, which is what verses 6 to 9 describe. What you have pictured here is is a feast, but it builds on an earlier covenant feast, an earlier meal that quite honestly, if it wasn't in the Bible, it'd be hard to believe. If you were to read this afternoon in Exodus 24, you would discover that that God invites the elders of Israel up to the top of Mount Sinai. And there God comes down to the top of the mountain and he feasts with them. Exodus 24, 11 says, God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. That's an exodus on Mount Sinai. But here in Isaiah, Isaiah looks forward to a new feast on a better mountain. Because this mountain, which he describes, is is Mount Zion. It's the mountain of the Lord. It's the mountain to which the nations stream. Before they had come to Mount Sinai, the mountain of the law. Now we come to Mount Zion, the mountain of the gospel. Before they had come to Mount Sinai, the, the mountain of threatening Now they come to Mount Zion, the the mountain of assurance. Before they had come to the place where smoke and fire and trumpet blast were, here they come to the place where the Lord is, where there's great joy and feasting. This is a much better mountain with a much greater feast. And on this mountain, Mount Zion, God invites his people to a rich feast, a wonderful banquet, a kind of marriage supper where there will be eating, eating and drinking and feasting. And God's people will sit down at this banquet that God's own love has spread for them. Look out, it's described in verse 6. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Friends, here's a picture of nourishment and refreshment, of, of the, the, the ultimate extent of effort made, the best of meats and the best of foods and the best of wines, everything that's the very best. And God invites all peoples, not just Jew, but Gentile, not just white, but black and brown, not just insider, but outsider. He invites every ethnicity, every race, every economic condition, and he invites us all to come and to eat at the table of the Lord, to feast and to eat and to enjoy. But notice, notice at this feast, we're not the only ones eating. No, God eats too which makes this feast possible. Look at verse 7. And he, that is God, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death 
forever. What's pictured here? Well, there, what's pictured is, is a death shroud that covers the world, the result of our first parents' original sin. Uh, the old saying has it, in Adam's fall, we die all. And that's what's pictured here. We sometimes have this at funerals. Uh, the casket might be down here, and it, it might be covered, not with an American flag, but with a, with a pole, with a shroud, a kind of, of, of le- uh, lacy blanket that has the form of the cross on it. And it's meant to picture this shroud or this sheet that covers us. That's the result of Adam and Eve's first sin and, and the participation that we experience in it. This sheet covers us all, but not just the reality of physical death. No, this, this sheet that's pictured here, this death shroud, it, it also pictures the, the judicial wrath and curse of God that hangs over us. The consequence of sin and law and spiritual death, it, it is the second death. But, but what happens? Does the death sheet remain upon us? Does the death shroud continue to cover us? No, God does something about it. What does he do? He swallows it. He eats it up. He consumes it. And in case we miss it, what does Isaiah say? He will swallow up death forever. So that once and for all, God will completely deal with death forever. Now I ask you this morning, when did that happen? It happened when God raised Jesus from the dead. On that first Easter Sunday morning, Christ swallowed up death forever. He ate it up. He swallowed it completely so that it's it's all his own and it no longer threatens you. It no longer leers at you. It no longer holds you in fear. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have no reason to fear death. You might have reasons to fear the process of dying. But you have no reason to fear death itself. Why? Because Christ swallowed up death forever. And it no longer threatens you. It no longer leers at you. It no longer can sting you. It can no longer attempt to try to do you harm. Because God in Jesus Christ has dealt with death once and for all. This is the way the Apostle Paul put it. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And so death, where is your victory? And death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we praise God this morning. We sing hallelujah this morning, not only because Christ has been raised, but because Christ has been raised, you too shall be raised, because Christ has put death to death. As we sung, love is one, Christ is conquered. There's a reason to praise this morning. There's a reason to come and say, oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name because God is faithful and God's feasting is such that we are able to feast with him and rejoice because he has swallowed up death forever. Our eating leads to rejoicing, but not just rejoicing that we, that death will not conquer us, 
but rejoicing that all sorrows shall be undone. That's where Isaiah goes next. The rest of verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What good news. All our tears and all our sorrows and all our reproach and all our guilt and all our shame and all our fear and all our anxiety and all our longing, it will all be gone. Why? Because at that feasting day, the Lord himself, not a proxy, right? Not, not your best friend, not your spouse who's gone before, the Lord himself the Lord Jesus himself, as he welcomes you, and if there's tears in your eyes, he himself will wipe them away. You parents in the room, you've done that to your children, your grandchildren, haven't you? When they've skinned their knee, when they've fallen down and gone boom, boom, and they come to you and their tears and sad cries, and you comfort them, and you take your thumb and you wipe those tears away, that's what the Lord's going to do. The one who swallowed up death forever. He's going to wipe away those tears. And he's going to do it because we've come to the feasting day. And that's why we say, behold, this is our God. We waited for him. Here he is. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice in his salvation. Because on that day, when we feast with God, we will rejoice. No more sadness. No more tears. We'll sing the hallelujah now, even as we wait. Because Christ has swallowed up death forever. But there's coming a day, my friends when we will join our voices with people from every language, tribe, nation, and people, and we will sing, Alleluia, the Lord our God reigns. And that will be a day of great rejoicing. There's one more reason, though. One more reason why we praise this morning. One more reason why we sing hallelujah. Certainly because of his faithfulness. Also because of his feast. But we also... We also rejoice because of his final judgment. That's what verses 10 to 12 describe. We recognize there is a final judgment coming. And for the saints, that's good news. Listen, the fact that Jesus is coming again and there is a final judgment means that wrong will become right. And all that is sad will come untrue. And in the place of brokenness, there will be healing. And in the, the, in, the, in the light of the harms that we've experienced, they will be taken away and brought to full healing and hope and shalom. It is a good thing, Christian, that Jesus is coming again to judge the world. That is a great hope that we have. And we rejoice that the Lord God Almighty in Jesus Christ will reign and will judge all that is evil and all that is wrong on that day. In Isaiah's text, uh, this, this judgment is represented by what happens to Moab. But, but Moab simply represents all the nations and all the peoples, all the groups and all the individuals who resist God, who fail to submit to the Son, who fail to submit to Jesus, who continue to seek their own way of salvation. And what happens to them? What happens to those who continue to resist God as Moab did, described here in Isaiah 25? Well, verse 11 tells you, the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. 
You see, my friends, while God offers salvation to all sorts of peoples, all peoples, all nations, all faces, all the earth, still there will be some who will reject him. There will be those who fail to submit to him. There will be those who will fail to bow the knee to Jesus, who will fail to put their trust in him and to rest in his salvation gained in the cross and the empty tomb. I wonder this morning, could that, could that possibly be you? Is it possible that you are here this morning, having come perhaps with a friend or a family member to this, this worship service on Easter Sunday? Could it be possible that, that you would be caught up in a final disaster, the final judgment that comes, that comes upon pompous pride and trusting in the skill of your hands to gain salvation for you? Could it be that, that you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ and so put your place in the Put yourself in the place of danger, of the coming destruction, of the reality of hell. Could that be you? Could it be that at one point you had a profession of faith, but, but there was no reality there? And so you've sung the hallelujahs this morning, but your heart wasn't in it. You were going through the motions because, quite honestly, you're not committed to Jesus Christ. And you've not put your trust in him. And quite honestly, you fear death because you know that when death comes, there will be a final judgment. Listen, there is no reason and no need for you to go to destruction. In this time between times, our Lord God shows patience to us so that all might come to repentance. Today is the day of salvation. Already this day, you have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came, born of the Virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. Why did he do that? For his own sins? No, he did it for your sins. But he triumphed over death by rising from the dead. And he invites all sinners to come to him and to bow the knee to him and and submit in allegiance to him and put their trust in him. And if you do, if you do, Lord Jesus himself will invite you to come to the feast. He'll say, come on, child. Come to the feast. Drink this food I prepared for you. Take this great wine that I prepared for you. Sing the great songs I've given to you. Sing the hallelujah today. He invites you to come to his banqueting table. He come to come to this banquet of love. Will you come? Will you come? Come to Jesus this morning. Rest your heart in him. And sing with us in a moment from the, from the depths of your soul. Hallelujah. The Lord God Almighty reigneth because Christ swallowed up death forever. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you this day that you have given us such an anchor for our hopes. And our anchor is cast in that empty tomb because Christ Jesus is raised. He is alive today. He's risen indeed. And so, Lord, I do pray for your people. I pray especially for those who are here who, who've never submitted to Jesus Christ, never put their trust in him. Lord, please, may today be the day of salvation. May they not walk away uh, without pondering the, the, the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, and especially what these events of death, burial, resurrection mean for sinners like us. But, Lord, for the rest, may we worship Christ, the risen King, today. And sing hallelujah with all of our being. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymn.